Good morning. It is a joy and a blessing uh, to be here, to have the opportunity to come together, to be nourished on God's word, um, and be drawn closer to him. Uh, The reason that we're here is because we want to develop a deeper relationship with the Lord. We want to better glorify and honor him in our lives day by day. uh, And what he has given to help us come to know him, uh, to equip us in that goal of, of shining his light, reflecting his character is his word. Satan is a liar. John 8 verse 44 tells us that Satan is the father of lies. The greatest and most foundational way that he attacks us is getting us to believe things that are false. Things that are false about ourselves, things that are false about God, things that are false about his word or the world around us. But if Satan can get us to see things through a skewed lens and think that we're seeing things as they truly are, then he has us exactly where he wants us. Satan's lies are the foundation that all temptation and error are built upon. And so if we want to follow Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life, if we want to abide in his word that we might know the truth and the truth might set us free, if we want to be sanctified by the truth, if we want to receive the love of the truth that we might be saved, then we need to open our eyes to Satan's tactics. We need to make sure that that we're aware of the lies that he's using against us. We need to examine more closely the very nature of the falsehood that he uses against us. Today, I want us to go all the way back to the garden, the, the scripture that Jared just read for us in Genesis 3, and see on a very basic level how Satan tries to deceive us. I've entitled this lesson, What Makes a Good Lie? This is not a how-to guide. Um, and how, how to apply these things to your mouth, uh, but rather how to apply them to your ears, um, to your heart. How do we identify Satan's lies and guard against them? Well, as we look here in Genesis 3, and let me just go ahead and read this passage again, uh, now that we kind of know what it is that we're looking for and thinking about. Let's read this again. Genesis 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the tree through the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. What do you see about the lies that Satan tells here that might be instructive to us, that might be helpful to us as we consider the lies that he might be trying to tell you and I today? Uh, I think one very basic thing that we can see is that a good lie contains some truth. Was what Satan said entirely False. Now, he does flatly deny what God said in verse 4. He says, you surely will not die. That's exactly the opposite of what God said. But, but do you notice what he says in verse 5? It says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Was that true? Well, look a little bit later. Look in chapter 3 and verse 22. It says, then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, 
And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Was it true that in, in at least one sense, eating of this fruit would make them like God and give them the ability to discern good and evil? God himself, out of his own mouth in verse 22, says that's true. Now, I, I think we need to recognize uh, it made them less like God in every way that truly mattered, right? Uh, tasting of evil, it, it marred his perfect image within them. But there was a sense in which what Satan said was true in verse 5 is, is true. It is what happened in this, in this one way of knowing good and evil, having their eyes open to that. Uh, they became like God in that sense, uh, to some extent. And, and what Satan said seems to be consistent with what Eve is seeing with her own eyes, Right? Uh, she looks and she sees that it's a delight to the eyes. It doesn't look dangerous. Uh, you know, the, the fruit doesn't seem to have some, you know, maybe scary looking thorns on it. It's not some questionable looking color or shape. It doesn't have some funny or suspicious smell. Uh, it looks good and beautiful, just like all the other trees in the garden. And like all the other trees, it seemed to be good for food. Now, I don't know how Eve concluded that. How did she know that it was good for food? I don't know if perhaps Satan himself demonstrated this to her by, by eating of it himself. But, but whatever it is, uh, Satan seems to demonstrate, it seems to be evident that this is not deadly, but, but nourishing. The experience of her five senses seem to confirm exactly what Satan has said about it. It's surely not as bad as God made it out to be, Right? God must have just been maybe a little overly restrictive, uh, maybe a little hyper-cautious about this. It's really not as bad as it seems he was painting it out to be. But as she's gaining some new insights here, what she herself is experiencing seems to put a new light on things. It doesn't seem to be deadly. It seems to be good for food, nourishing, in fact. And according to what Satan has said, it is desirable to make her wise. Surely that's commendable thing, right? A good goal to, to be wise? That's not a bad thing. To be like God, the pursuit of wisdom, of a deeper likeness with God, you know, even if this ends up not being exactly the right choice, I, I think God would understand. That there are good and justifiable reasons to make this choice, right? Wisdom, God would understand me wanting to pursue wisdom. Being like God, God would understand me wanting to, to pursue being more like him. And, and I'll I'll never really know for sure unless, unless I try it out. Do you see that? Do you see how uh, giving this lie uh, a good bit of truth made it much more convincing? Um, it doesn't seem like a mindless, reckless, rebellious thing to do in Eve's mind, I imagine. Satan's lies made it look like a desirable, reasonable, uh, and maybe even commendable thing to do. By sprinkling the lie with plenty of truth, this act of blatant disobedience did not seem quite so black and white. That's how Satan works. Okay. Consider Matthew 7. If you want to turn your Bibles with me there, Matthew 7, in the Sermon on the Mount, I, I want you to notice what Jesus says about uh, false prophets here those who had claimed to be speaking truth on behalf of God and yet are speaking a lie. Notice how he describes them. Matthew 7, verse 15 and 16. 
Jesus says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. I, I want to ask us a question here. What, what is the difference between sheep's clothing and good fruit? What's the difference between sheep's clothing and good fruit? On a surface level, both have an outward appearance of being good and right. Look a little later in this passage, verse 22 and 23. Jesus says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. These people think they have fruit. That evidences that they have been serving the Lord, right? We, we've, been, we've been prophesying, we've been casting out demons, we've been doing miracles. You know, wouldn't that indicate that, that we're actually serving you? Jesus says no. In fact, earlier in this sermon, Matthew chapter 6, you know, the Pharisees might have said, well, but we're giving to the poor. And we're praying. And we're fasting. Isn't that fruit? Isn't that evidence that we're actually serving the Lord? Well, no, in that case, in both of these cases, it's just sheep's clothing. It's not truly fruit of the Lord. So let let me ask again, what, what is the difference between fruit, good fruit, and sheep's clothing? You know, have you ever heard someone say, but, but this is so good. You know, look, look at the difference it's making. Look at the encouragement it's bringing to people. Look at the positive effects that it's having. How do we know whether or not we're pointing at sheep's clothing or good fruit? Is it the experience of our five senses, like Eve? This looks good, right? Well, let, let me use an illustration, and I have to confess, I actually stole this from David Williamson sitting up here. Um, how do you know what cherry tastes like? How do you know what strawberry tastes like? You know, as a kid, maybe this was your understanding of what strawberry was or, or what uh, cherry was. Maybe you went to the gas station um, and, you know, got a, a cherry slushy, and that's your idea of what cherry tastes like. Or you go to your grandparents and you get some of these strawberry uh, hard candies, Uh, And and that's your idea of what strawberry tastes like. And then maybe a day came where you actually ate a cherry for the first time. What what do you think your reaction might be? That's not cherry, right? That doesn't taste like what I know cherry to be. Um, It doesn't taste as good as the slushies down at the gas station, right? Or maybe you ate a strawberry. That that doesn't taste like that strawberry candy that I'm used to. right? How, How do you know what the real thing is. You know, sometimes if if we have become accustomed to one thing, our our perspective of what cherry or strawberry tastes like may be completely skewed by our experiences. The solution is that we need to become intimately acquainted with the true fruit of God's word and God's character. It can't be what seems good to me. It must be what God says is good. Consider Isaiah 5 uh, in verse 20. 
Consider Isaiah 5 uh, in verse 20, where God says to his people, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute, substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. The, the world, Satan, the ruler of this world, is in the practice of turning things upside down, right? And he gets us not only to think that bad things are okay and permissible. In fact, he wants us to get us to think that they're actually good and they're actually commendable. Consider for a moment the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. Uh, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do we know what those things truly are? Love, for instance. You know, how does the world define love? Well, often uh, in a very fleshly way, a uh, selfish pursuit, uh, perhaps of sexual fulfillment. How, how does the world define joy? Maybe earthly prosperity, enjoyable experiences, not going through difficult things, not taking up your cross, right? That's not joy. How does the world define peace? Maybe freedom from earthly hardships, experiencing pleasant circumstances in life. Do you see the problem there? I don't know what good is unless God tells me. I can't trust my own perception. I must trust his word. And that's exactly what Eve is doing here. She's trusting her own perception of what is good. And it, it seems, you know, it seems that maybe, you know, maybe Satan kind of knows what he's talking about here. We need to stop trusting our own perceptions, our own experiences, our own idea of what is love, what is peace, what is joy, what is good. We need to let the Lord tell us. We need to look to the fruit of his word. Uh, remember back in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, we talked about those people who said, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this? Didn't we do that? Did, do you know what the verse right before that says? Matthew 7, verse 21. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my father who is in heaven will enter. It's not everybody who, who is involved in religious things. Who's involved in things that look impressive. It's not everybody who, who may, maybe they're even practicing some of the right things like Matthew 6, but doing it completely in the wrong way or for the wrong reasons. What it is, is people who are genuinely following the will of the Lord. If we want to know what good fruit is, we need to get back to the will of the Lord. What it is that he has revealed to us. Not just what looks good to me, what fits my perspective of who God is or what he desires, but what God reveals to me about himself and about his will within his word. That's exactly what Eve needed to do, was get back to what God had said. Consider as well 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians here talking about how Satan works Paul says in verse 13, um, starting in verse 13, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. You know, 
have you ever uh, felt like, well, you know, I, I can't really speak against that teaching. I can't speak against that practice because th- those people are servants of righteousness. They're, they're Christians. They're Jesus's sheep. Well, of course, that's what they appear to be. We shouldn't expect anything different. That's how Satan works. We need to dig deeper. Uh, We need to dig deeper to the truth of God's word. The only way I know what righteousness is, is for God to tell me. The only way I know what God's will is, is for God to tell me. The only way I know what good fruit is, is for God to tell me. And the only way that I know uh, what it means to be a genuine sheep in God's flock is to listen to the voice of the good shepherd. Satan's lies will always have truth sprinkled in, good things that can be said about them. But we have to dig beyond their perception of our five senses to make sure we are truly abiding within God's words. Remember John 8, 31 and 32, Jesus says, Abide within my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. Uh, you know, in the world that we live in today, truth seems like something that, that we, we can't attain to, right? No, nobody really knows what the truth is. To say that you know what the truth is, well, that's just arrogant. Well, no, there, there is one way, one way that we can know the truth. And Jesus tells us what it is. Abide within my word. And you will know the truth. You will know the truth. Not not by our own strength, by our own intellectual ability to figure it out. Not by what it is that we've experienced and discovered. No, you abide in my word and then you will know the truth. Because God is truth. And his word will lead us within it. And so if we want uh, to make sure that we're seeing through Satan's lies, we need to stop trusting our own experiences, trusting our own perception, That's exactly what Eve did. We need to get back to what God has told us. Satan is good at this. He's been at it a long time. He makes it look a whole lot like the truth. So we need to cling closer to the one that we know has the truth. But along with uh, this idea of a good lie containing some truth, uh, a good lie is also told with confidence. Remember in Genesis 3 verse 4, the very first thing that, that Satan says in, in response to having asked these questions, uh, he says in Genesis 3 verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Satan is not shy about denying what God has said here. He doesn't just ask a question and kind of cast doubt on God's word. He doesn't say, are you sure that you'll die? Are you sure that that's true? He says, you surely won't. You surely will not die. Why, why would he take such a blatant and straightforward approach? You know, that, that seems to, to be such a blatant contradiction. Wouldn't, wouldn't that make his lie a little bit less believable? You know, sometimes when we ourselves are in a place of uncertainty and insecurity, the confidence of someone else can be quite attractive to us. Th- think about it this way. Uh, have you ever been somewhere that you weren't exactly sure where you were going or what you were supposed to do? Maybe especially as a child. And then all of a sudden, there's somebody who seems like they know where they're going. Somebody who knows what they're talking about. Um, you know, I, I don't have that confidence, but they, they seem to know what they're talking about. You know, they, they must be right. I, I better follow them, right? 
Too often that's what happens in the religious world. If others look to be more knowledgeable and competent in what they're doing, if they seem deeply convicted, uh, then they must be right. Who am I to question their sincerely held beliefs? Who am I to think that I'm, I'm smarter than they are and that I figured out something that they, they haven't, right? But, but this is how Satan works. Um, think about 1 Timothy 1 and verse 7. Paul tells Timothy uh, about those who are teaching false doctrine that he needs to address. He says, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they say or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They're not making confident assertions because they understand something more deeply in this case. Uh, But they're making confident assertions all the same, right? That's how Satan works. False teachers are going to be deeply convicted people. They're going to seem confident, like they know what they're talking about, but their confidence is not an anchor for our souls. It's not the rock we can build our house on. It's rock that threatens us with shipwreck. I I want to contrast two similar illustrations in the scriptures. Ephesians 4 and verse 14. Ephesians 4 and verse 14, as we talk about growing up uh, into uh, mature manhood, into the fullness of Christ. It says here in Ephesians 4, verse 14, as a result, we are no longer to be children, tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So he says, don't be children. You know, children are gullible, right? Children, uh, when somebody else say some something with confidence, they seem like they know what they're doing, well, they must be right, right? But I want to contrast that with Mark 10 and verse 15. Mark 10 and verse 15, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Are we to be children? Or are we not to be children? Right? Um, You know, children are easily influenced. They're very moldable. Um, have married multiple minds and hearts, quick to accept what they're told as true. Is that a good model of the heart that we should have? Or is that a bad model of the heart that we should have? Well, it entirely depends on whose voice we're listening to, right? When, When it's the voice of the Lord, it shouldn't take much at all to influence us or convince us. If that's what God says, then that's what I want to believe. That's what I want to do. And if it's not what God has said, then it's not what I want to do. It's as simple as that, right? That's the heart of a child listening to the father. But when it's the voice of men, the voice of the culture around us, religious or otherwise, then we need to be very hesitant to be influenced. We need to no longer be children tossed here and there and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by whatever we see as attractive or commendable or good going on around us. You know, sometimes we think growing up is about thinking independently of our parents, right? If, if I'm truly growing up, I'm, I'm going to become my own person, think independently of mom and dad. And maybe in an earthly sense, there, there's some need for that. But that is never to be the case when it comes to our Heavenly Father. The truly mature disciple will always be a little child when it comes to listening to the Father's voice. Can you imagine what's going on in Eve's heart back in Genesis 3? Um, 
you know, might, might she say, well, you know, the serpent sure seems to know what he's talking about, right? He seems pretty confident and pretty bold in these statements. He sure knows a whole lot more than I do about this. Maybe he's right. How can she know that he's not right? Because it's not what the father said, right? And is that childish to go back to, to what the father said? No, that, that is exactly the kind of childlike heart that God wants us to have. It's not what God said. And so it doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter, you know, what, what the experience of my five senses are telling me. If it's not what God said, then that's not what I'm going to do. Because I trust the father. John 12, verse 49 and 50, Jesus says, For I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and to what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. You see that Jesus, the Son of God, is a pattern for us of the childlike heart that we need to have. And even though Jesus has all authority, Uh, is going to be given all authority in heaven and on earth. Still, he teaches us this concept. The things I speak, I speak just as the Father told me. I'm not adding to it. I'm not taking from it. I'm not changing it or twisting it. I'm not making it my own. It's not my own. It's the Father's. And so the way that I talk about anything needs to be the way that God talks about it. Think about 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. Whoever speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. Why? So that God might be glorified. It's not about me. It's not about what I figured out, uh, you know, what I've experienced, this new knowledge that I've come to. It's about what does God say? And that is childish in the best possible way. That is the kind of childlike heart that God wants us to have. That's true spiritual maturity, is learning to trust in the words of the Father more deeply. That's what Jesus reflects to us. Our confidence does not come from ourselves. Our experiences, our personal understanding, or the influence of any other voices in our life, our confidence comes from God's word. We know the truth when we abide in God's word, and there's no other way. Truth is not something we are capable of discovering simply from our own experiences and exploration. It is the gift of God. And it comes to us from his mouth. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't search and see, right? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't dig deeper and deeper. But, but if God didn't want us to know the truth, then we would not know it. Truth is the gift of God. Um, and so as we dig, may we be de- digging deeper and deeper into what it is that he has revealed to us, not anything else. But thirdly, Good lie plays to our desires. Remember back there in Genesis 3 and verse 6. It says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate. A good lie isn't just believable, but desirable. It promises us some form of fulfillment, whether in a physical or emotional or intellectual sense. Maybe it's how it feels. Maybe it's how it appears. Maybe it's how it allows me or or what it allows me to achieve or experience. But in one way or another, it's something that I want to believe is true. Look look with me at a couple of passages in uh, the letters to Timothy. Look in 2 Timothy 
chapter 4, 2 Timothy chapter 4. And notice what Paul says to Timothy here, starting in verse 2. He tells Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. You know, the standard of a teaching's power and value um, won't be measured by how faithful it is uh, here, uh, according to, to this mindset in, in 2 Timothy 4. Uh, it won't be measured by how faithful to the word it is, but how consistent it is with my desires and my thinking on the issue. I become the barometer of truth, right? And the teachers that I'm going to listen to the most, the teachers that I'm going to find most powerful and fulfilling uh, and encouraging are, are the ones that are going to most meet my felt needs, right? The, the, the ones that are going to most be in line with what it is that I find meaningful, what I believe touches my heart, right? Whatever puts a stamp of approval on the things I want to believe and the lifestyle I want to live. And, and when a teaching, you know, doesn't touch my heart, my felt needs, do, doesn't appeal to what I believe to be important and valuable, well, then that's just not a very valuable teacher. You know, that, 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 that's just not as, as, as powerful. I, I want us to notice, though, um, some other things that Paul says to Timothy about the false teachers that he's needing to deal with in both 1st and 2nd Timothy. Look, look in 1st Timothy, chapter 4, um, and this might be addressing a slightly different situation, but, but I think it's, it's the same problem that's being addressed. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 3, Paul says, But the Spirit expl explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared and by those who believe and know the truth. Okay, so here people are, are going to start teaching false doctrines, deceitful spirits. But, but I want you to notice the examples that he gives in verse 3. People who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created. You know, that, that doesn't sound a whole lot like accumulating teachers for my own desires, right? I mean, who, who's, who just has a real strong desire to be unmarried the rest of their life, you know, and, and forbid marriage? Who, who has some real strong desire to, to uh, you know, not eat certain foods, especially if bacon is involved here? You know, that, that's obviously not appealing to, to their fleshly desires. Or, or is it? You know, this isn't the only place that we see that, where, where Satan is going to use lies that, that appear to be maybe doing the exact opposite of what we're saying here. Let, let me look at another example. Look in Colossians 2. Colossians 2, starting in verse 18. 
Verse 18, it says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you are living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use, in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men? Verse 23, these are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Is this just a really bad lie? Um, you know, who, who is going to delight in self-abasement and severe treatment of the body? Um, you know, who's going to find that attractive? Who, who's going to find it attractive to, to abide by these laws saying, do not touch, do not handle, do not taste, right? It seems like Satan is, is kind of not, not doing quite as well in, in the lie department here. Uh, and what he's trying to tell. I, I think, in fact, he may be being a lot more subtle th- than we realize, right? Because we, we, we look at lies like this and we say, well, that's not playing to my desires. That, that's not playing to, to what I want to do. I, I wonder if Satan is employing some reverse psychology here. <laughs> he convinces us that the right decision is actually the easy decision. Um. And the wrong decision, well, that's the hard decision. That's what takes courage and commitment. That's what takes self-discipline and independent thinking. Can you imagine him trying to get Eve to think this way? You know, staying within your comfort zone of what God has told you and what you've experienced, that's the easy thing to do. Be courageous. Get outside of your comfort zone. Be independent. Try it for yourself. That's the only way you'll ever really know. Take a leap of faith. Would it be taking a leap of faith for Eve to go and eat that fruit? No, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And so Satan can convince us sometimes that, that what we're doing, well, that's the courageous thing to do. What, what we're doing, you know, that's, that's thinking independently. That, that's getting outside of our comfort zones. And make no mistake, there are times where we need to get outside of our comfort zone. There, there are times where what we've always done, we, we need to realize that's wrong and we need to change. But, but at the end of the day, my desires, my comfort zone, my past experiences, the outside influences of my life should have zero effect upon the truth of God's word. My desires are not the barometer of truth in one way or the other, right? Just because it's what I want doesn't mean that it is not the truth. Just because it's not what I want doesn't mean that it's the truth. That, that has zero effect on what the truth is. The only way that I'm going to know the truth is not by experiencing it. The way I'm going to know the truth is by listening to what God says about it. That's the childlike heart that God wants us to have. That's the heart that Eve needed to have. How do we properly 
counteract the pull of our desires when it comes to determining the truth. Look with me at one uh, last passage, James 1. James 1, starting in verse 14. Verse 14, it says, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust or desire. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is accomplished, it brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. I want you to notice a contrast in this passage. There's two births going on here. What one is the conception and growth of desire. Um, and as we already discussed, that can take all sorts of different forms, whether that be uh, you know pride or fleshly desire. Uh, but but he warns us not to be deceived that God's gifts are different. The, the birth or conception that God produces, in verse 18, is through the word of truth. It actually uses the same word there in verse 18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth. That's the same word translated uh, desire has conceived or given birth uh, there in verse 15. Uh, and so here, th- there's, there's a different growth. But this doesn't come from outside influences. This doesn't come from my desires. This doesn't come from my own perceptions. This comes from the word of truth. And so, how do I counteract? How do I know if this is, is just what I desire to be true? Or, or you know, if, if it's some subtle lie that Satan is telling me, and, and it's some uh, hidden desire that's pulling me in this direction? Well, I, I throw out anything that has to do anything about my desires, and I get back to the word of truth. If it's what God said, that's the seed that is to give me life. That's the seed that is to conceive and bring about uh, the, the life that God intends for me to live. You know, five times in the New Testament, God exhorts us, be not deceived. One of them is right here. That implies that being deceived or not being deceived is a choice we are capable of making. But it doesn't ha- happen simply by the experiences of our five senses or our own personal assessment of what appears to be good or what appears to be evil. It happens by walking by faith. As we already said, Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. The word of truth. That's what's going to keep us from the devil's lies. Go back to the word of God. Take refuge in the safety of his revelation. Build your life on the rock of Jesus' commands. Don't depart to the right or the left. Then and only then can we be well equipped to see through Satan's lies. That's exactly what Eve needed to do. It doesn't matter what I see in this situation, what it appears to me. It doesn't seem if it, if maybe Satan's telling some truth here. What did God say? We need to have the childlike heart to simply go back to God's word. That is walking by faith. Satan is a liar. And brethren, he's good at it. 
He's the father of lies. He's been at this a whole lot longer than you and I have. He'll sprinkle it with truth. He'll state it with boldness. He'll find an open door in the desires of our hearts to lead us maybe subtly away from the word of the Lord. But may we have the heart to step back and say, no, this is what God said. And that's what I'm going to do. Period. What about you today? Are you walking by faith? Can you say that God's word is truly what is directing your life? Put yourself in Eve's shoes. In that situation, um, if, if, if you were Eve, how, how would you have handled it? And how does that compare with the way that you're handling things in your life today? May we have the childlike heart, not to be tossed here and there by every wind of doctrine, no, but the childlike heart to listen to what God says and do it. If you recognize you're not walking by faith uh, and you need to get back to following God's word in your life, to surrendering to his direction and his leading in all things, won't you do that? I love you. God loves you. And the word of truth has given us an opportunity to be set free. The gospel of salvation in Jesus Christ has given us an opportunity to be cleansed of our sins, to have fellowship with God, his spirit dwelling within us, to have a hope of eternity in his presence someday. That's what God desires for you. And if you don't have that today, won't you make a change? If there's any way that we can help you in responding to the gospel, confessing your belief in Jesus as Lord and Christ, bearing your old man of sin and baptism, you can be raised to walk in newness of life. Not by your own strength or power or, or anything that you've done, but by the strength of the Lord, by his power, the power of the resurrection. If we can help you in that or you need to come back to the Lord in some way, uh, we're here to pray for you, to pray with you, to support you in that. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation in some public way, won't, won't you make that known at this time as we stand and sing together?